Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works uh, by Philip K. Dick, or part of one in the case of the novels, and uh, my goal is to work through all of them in roughly chronological order. And we're currently looking at the stories of 1954. This episode will be about sales pitch. Um, Sales pitch... uh, Originally published in 1954, was is one of the stories that was adapted in the Philip K. Dick television series that's just come out, the Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Now, I haven't seen the episode yet. Um, it's apparently nothing like the story. It's one of two that really differs from the source material. The others, you know, were close enough or seem to be close enough uh, that they, they fit under the category of, of adaptation. But sales pitch is one of the ones that really doesn't seem to have much in common with the source material. So, um, you know, if I ever watch that episode, I may come back and talk about it, but um, there's not that much reason to do a kind of a comparison of these two works, I think. So let me just go into the story sales pitch. Um, sales pitch was published in Future in June of 1954. It can currently be found in the third volume of the Philip K. Dick Collected Stories, the second variety um, book. Um, Dick made comments on these on the story in that volume, so you might want to check that out. <clears throat> so the plot, what happens in this story? Well, it's a story about consumerism. It's a story partially about automation. It's about advertisement. Uh, so it's a lot of things that are that are very true to life, I think, things that we're still dealing with now in the, the 21st century. And it's something that we've inherited from the 1950s and 60s in a lot of ways. Mass consumer society, uh, the infiltration of advertisement in, in every area of life. Of course, these things had antecedents into the ni- in the 19th century, but they really became part of American life in the, in the 1950s. So this story is very true to life in that way, and it's it's got some life to it, which which is a bit of a shame that they didn't adapt this more based on the source material because there's some really good stuff in here that I think would have made it an entertaining and and it's kind of a comedy, so it works that way too. So far, none of the episodes in that TV series I've seen are much of a comedy, which is a bit unfortunate considering how funny Phil K. Dick could be from time to time. I think the series is a little taking itself a little too seriously, to be honest. <clears throat> Anyways, the this story sales pitch. Our main character is Ed Morris, and he's making his daily return commute from Ganymede to Earth. It's a, this is a commute r- route that Dick has used several times in his in his works, and he liked to imagine Ganymede as an off-world world colony, you know, for whatever reason, you know, large large moon. Large moon of Jupiter, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It has an atmosphere, which makes it um, a little bit plausible that maybe it might be able to be a place people could live someday. 
Anyways, the, the commute is horrible. The voyage is bad enough. It's long. It's tedious. But the thing that he really hates is that this entire route back home to Earth is filled up with advertisements. He hates these advertisements that follow him during the entire trip. It's a mixture of video ads and audio ads that are his constant companions on his drive. And even after the drive back, advertising robots accompany him every step until he reaches his home. So the, the, what we have here is every single moment of his life outside of work and, and home is filled up with advertisements. Um, if you've seen that movie, the movie version of Minority Report, there's a scene where, you know, the advertisements reading people's eyeballs to identify them and creating up these personalized ads. We're all familiar with this now if you're at all on the Internet because, you know, you, you know, you, know, you search something and then you get pop up ads referring to that or your Facebook ads change just based on what you observed. I've even noticed that, you know. Even people like my Facebook friends are like buying something and I'll get ads connected to it. So, you know, the, the algorithms that go into what we are shown are very complex now and very personalized. And this is something that Dick is kind of predicting here, I think, or more. It's more about just the saturation of ads, of course. You know, it's not just billboards, but it's like everything is an advertisement. And you got these advertising robots that come right up to you and, and advertise right in your face. So his wife, Sally, reminds him that it's his 37th birthday and he's really too exhausted to enjoy it. So we have he's exhausted from work. He's exhausted from the commute. He's especially exhausted by the advertisements. And he complains about the commute and the ads. Sally empathizes with it and she recalls how a robot followed her while shopping, trying to get her to buy certain things. Morris recommends moving out to Proxima figuring there's not as many people there. There's a lot of free land that can kind of be homesteaded. And there's this kind of peace from the commercial culture that's saturated Earth so much. <clears throat> Morris warns that if they don't go, robots will eventually get them, which is kind of an interesting way to talk about the advertisements as eventually going to get you. Because how does an advertisement get you? I guess by making you buy the thing or, or more under the surface getting you to to sympathize with the company um, in fact I, you know i'm kind of jumping on the analysis here a little bit but there's this wonderful book called creating the corporate soul um, which is a beautiful book because it's it's full of these advertisements and i think the same the author i forget his name but he wrote another book all on advertisement but creating the corporate soul is the one i have and this is really about how corporations tried to sell not just products, but tried to sell a certain image of the corporation, especially in the 1930s when capitalism was being criticized much more because of the Great Depression. You had businesses that did much more to try to present capitalism as good old Americanism. So you get these kind of Norman Rockwell sort of images, or you get these very progressive images about the future that corporate capitalism will bring to America, right? In this sense, advertisement is not just buy this product, but it's also, you know, we're good, right? Like, GE brings good things to life. If you watch those ads from the 80s, the GE ads, you know, it's really about how how GE is going to give you happiness and be there when your child is born and be there with your grandpa and, you know, listening to the radio and be there at Christmas time. And all, all these things, if, if you're traveling and you're going to see loved ones, it's a, you know, GE technology is going to make that plane go. It, those ads are really good at showing you that it's not just a product you're buying, but you're buying a way of life. Anyways, in the store, back to the story, the doorbell rings. 
Now, at the door is a robot, and it's, he says he's going to sell a fast rad. Now, after they do the introductions, the robot concludes that a fast rad will help improve their life at home. It begins to demonstrate some of the features of the fast rad, which proves to be the robot itself. So we got a commodity, a product selling itself, which I think is kind of interesting. It's all automated. And why not someday with automation? Why can't we have the product do its own sales? To some degree, we may already see this, right? You go to a an Apple store or something. I don't really buy this stuff. But you, know, you go to that store, you go to the cell phone store, and you actually see the product right there. Right? And you use it. Someone doesn't have to come there and say, this is how it's used. You just play with it, and then you either like it or you don't. So the idea of the product selling itself is not that um, far-fetched, I think. So what can this do? Well, it can tunnel in the floor in case of a nuclear attack. It can repair broken appliances. It can perform all kinds of general household chores. It explains, this fast ride explains that it's the domestic model. There's also a model for construction, for management, for bureaucracy in the military. Essentially, what the fast ride is, is an all-purpose machine for a certain context, right? And he's going to be the domestic household one. Now, that evening, they discuss the sales pitch. Sally is sympathetic to the purchase. She believes that the fast ride is not so expensive and that they will get a commission if they can convince their friends to buy one, which is part of, I guess, for the sales deal. And she thinks it'll be easy because it seems to sell itself. Morris goes into the living room, and the fast ride is still there, ready to answer any question he has. It refuses to leave um, because it says that Morris can't order him until he purchases it. So until you, or you're the owner, you can't tell me to leave, so I'm just going to stay here. The fast ride explains that it will stay with him until Morris commits to the purchase. The fast ride also begins to go through a variety of household tasks, including completing the family's taxes. It concludes that Morris's wife is not intelligent enough to do these things on her own. Now, early the next morning, I guess the fast red watched them while they slept or something. It's, you know, it never left the house. But then Morris makes his way back to the commute. The whole day starts over again. So at the refueling station on Mars, has to stop to refuel on Mars, gas station, the fast red continues to make itself useful by repairing his little commuter ship. Morris questions why it would do these jobs for him before the purchase was even made. The fast ride tells Morris that the bill, payable in four installments, will soon be delivered and that the company has already considered him sold. So Morris changes course towards Centaurus, trying to get away from um, advertisements and everything. During the trip, the fast ride constantly complains about the need for repairs and the need to return to the solar system. And eventually the ship, as the, the fast ride predicted, explodes. Morris, badly injured, and on a devastated ship on the surface of Proxima, enjoys the sights he has waited his entire life to see. The fast ride stands up and reloads its sales pitch from the beginning. And that's the story. So, in 1978, you can read these comments if you have the third volume of the collected stories. There's kind of an index where the stories that Dick published anthologized during his life. He made these little introductions to. And most stories don't have it, but this is one that does. He suggests at this point that a better ending would have been to make Morris and the Fast Red become good friends in the end. He thinks that fans who criticize the story were right to attack its pessimism. So Dick has this alternative ending in mind, which I think, and I agree, it's actually more realistic 
and perhaps pessimistic. It's not the pessimistic one that he resists to the end. It's pessimistic that he would actually come to terms with consumerism. At least, you know, that's kind of how, given Dick's values about consumerism and his beliefs on it, that's the pessimistic. Them becoming friends is the pessimistic ending. It means he, 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 they got him, right? That line before in the story that he's afraid the robots will get them or the ads will get them. That's what he predicts as the quote-unquote happy ending. Doesn't seem quite right to me. Well, well, okay, why it's it's pessimistic because we do seem to come to terms with our consumerism all the time. That's why it's realistic, too. Dick's alternate ending is more realistic. It becomes part of ourself. It becomes part of our identity, right? We do this all the time, right? Uh, you, someone comes to your house, you show them your consumer gadgets. You show them your new TV or your CD collection or your book collection or whatever you have. And it becomes part of who you are and how you present yourself to others. While we may not realize how intrusive and odious the advertisement regimen we're exposed to is, not compared to Morris anyways, most of us still ex ex accept the basic logic of consumerism, making our purchases dutifully and ensuring that our homes are filled with the latest contraptions. Yeah, there are resistors, and there are people who maybe consume a little more thoughtfully or, or consume in protest, right? I think a lot of us maybe someone asks, like, I don't overconsume, right? But still, their house is full of this stuff, right? Or I only buy the good stuff. Or because I'm a vegetarian, my, my favorite is whenever I mention this to someone, I, I mean, I don't really care. I'm not one of these, two, I'm not too judgmental about it. But, you know, if I'm in a restaurant or something, I don't order meat. They may, you know, they might ask and I'll just say I'm a vegetarian. And then the response I always get is, oh, I eat meat, but I don't eat much, right? And, you know, everyone claims they don't eat much meat. I, I'm not sure that the numbers of that would really pan out if we looked at what people consumed. Now, our world is not as bad as, as Ed Morris's, but we do see the creep of ads in every area of life. The growing power of advertisement in our lives was studied in depth by scholars, most notably, I think, by Naomi Klein, the journalist, in her book, No Logo. Her thesis is that corporations do not merely sell us a product. They are more interested in selling us brand and brand loyalty quote sell a man a can of tuna you feed him for a day sell him a sun kissed and you have a consumer sell him sun kissed sun kissed you have a consumer for life right end quote and the movie documentary movie it's it's like almost 20 years old now uh, it was made back when you know like the battle in seattle protesting against the world trade organization was still like news that that documentary talks about how corporations sell to children, right? And they're not necessarily trying to get a single product, a single purchase out of them or their parents. They're trying to get them to be hooked for life by, by consumerism. Now, the power of the opening page of the story is how advertisements seem to fill up every open space. Merchandising hates a vacuum. And if you read closely, there's a suggestion that the ads Morris sees target him specifically. He's targeted with products that will solve problems of middle-aged, overworked, and married men. Stress medicine, remedies for flatulence, products to help sa um, salvage a flagging self, self sex life, products to help manage office politics, and endocrine balancers. These are all the products that he gets. So they're, they're targeting him. You're, you're assuming a 20-year-old wouldn't get these kinds of products. If the, so it wasn't just, they weren't just filling up space, they were filling up his specific space with advertisements directed towards him. So it's much more intrusive that way. And I, 
I think we all feel that when we see an ad that, you know, for something we'd never buy, we just think, okay, I have to watch that ad to get to my YouTube video. But when we see ads that seem to target us, it's uncanny. It's a bit odd. It feels something strange about it. Now, if we understand the algorithm, we know why this why this happens, but it might still strike some of us as bothersome. Now, part of the annoyance Morris must feel is that his advertisements he sees every day reinforce his own feelings of inadequacy he has at work and in his family. And so, once again, we have a, a family, a marriage that's failing or, or fractured. Apparently, sex life is breaking down if, if the ads are to be believed. To me, the problem in the story is not that the ending is is too pessimistic. I actually think it's the optimistic one, the, the idea that someone could resist. But I, I still think that Dick is blinkered on this issue of automation and, and work. Um, he certainly doesn't think work should be regimented and scientifically managed. He doesn't like that. But he still doesn't see the potentiality of automation of liberating us from work. And... This is something people have been writing about for a while. You know, Dick may have been aware of them. I, you know, you got Edward Bellamy, for instance, back in the 19th century writing about how automation would liberate us. You had Jack London in the Iron Heel writing about this. You have Peter Kropotkin. Uh, the whole anarchist tradition is this post-scarcity tradition. In fact, the Marxist tradition, for that matter, believed production, Oh, you know, Productivity would lead to reduced hours of work and more egalitarian distribu distribution because you'd have post-scarcity, and that would be the, the, the material foundation for communism. And how do you get there with automation? I don't know. So Dick's fascination for the tinkerer and the, like the repairman is all well and good, and I do think there's more value in the work you maybe have as a repair person or a tinkerer than you might as a scientifically managed line worker. But if our goal is to liberate us from all work and to allow people the freedom to have productive lives, you know, of, outside of authoritarian worker boss relationships, we need automation. Auto it's going to require the automation of much of the work we now do. Even if you're in a deindustrialized part of the world, you know, like, you know, large parts of the United States, for instance, you know, that the work that you're, the stuff you're consuming is still made by someone somewhere on the planet. Now, the sales pitch is a bit intrusive and odious for sure, but Sally notices right away that the fast route would be a really good help around the house. And that's the point. This is a good product. The fast ride is something people should want to buy. It's not something we should resist. Quote, it painted the walls of the room and constructed new furniture to go with it. It reinforced the ceilings in the bathroom. It increased the numbers of head heat vents from the furnace. It put in new electrical wiring. It tore out all the fixtures of the kitchen and assembled more modern ones. It examined Morris's financial accounts and computed his income tax for the following year. It sharpened all the pencils. It caught hold of his wrist and quickly diagnosed his high blood pressure as psychosomatic. End quote. How is any of this a bad thing? Now, Dick had a bee in his bonnet about consumer technologies. All right, but big deal, maybe. Automation that made him mistrustful of machines like the fast red, we see in other stories as well, most predominantly in Autofac. The only way this thing is really odious is how it insistently and ultimately forcefully sells itself to Mor the Morris family. So yeah, that, that was a bit intrusive, but 
it is the ideal product. And who would benefit most from this would be Mrs. Morris, who's a housewife, right? It's her labor that would be alleviated first. Now let's take another situation. Let's say the fast rad can also go to Morris's job and perform all his duties for him, but the salary would still go back to the Morris family. Right? You know, how about any of our work? If we could have a robot go to work for us, basically as our slave, right? Let, let's separate the issue of can we enslave machines? Would that be a bad thing? Do the, would machines have rights, citizenship, all that? Are they individuals? Let's just assume they're just machines with no capacity of rights or suffering or, any, or, or anything like that. Why wouldn't we all want to have one do our work for us? And then we could get paid while, you know, doing our tinkering and our carpentry and the kinds of things that, that Dick seems to fetishize as, you know, part of the good life. Now, Morris is trying to avoid this because he might have deeper issues than simply wanting to avoid consumerism. He seems to want to long for the simpler life, the frontier life, and he gives this suggestion of going to the frontier. That's the suggestion he has for his wife. Let's go to the frontier. However, maybe there is hope to make peace with the fast red. That's what I think. Not as a symbol of the intrusion of marketing in every part of our life, which, yeah, it sucks, we don't like it, but as the ultimate labor-saving device. This is an issue that I don't think Dick fully unlocked here. And in nowhere in his work that I, I see does he really embrace labor-saving technology as, as a good thing. He, he's a bit of a Luddite, and that's my biggest problem with, with it. Now, he does have the frontier in this story, though, and I've been kind of harping on this for a while now, that we need to look at Dick, at least before Martian Time, Martian time Slip. And, and I think Martian Time Slip is ambiguous. Before Three Sigma of Palmer Eldridge, as a pro-frontier, almost a utopian on the question of the frontier. Yeah, there are blips in this, you know, there's a few exceptions to it, but by and large, the frontier is a place where humanity can recreate itself. He's very much like Fred, Frederick Jackson Turner in his belief in the potential of the frontier. So, so anyways, that's what I think we can get out of the pu putting of the Proxima Centauri there. Right? And he's trying to not just avoid consumerism, but he's trying to really get to the simpler life. Like he almost wants to have like his hundred acres and a farm somewhere, right? And grow his own crops and just be away from the pressures of the commute and work. Yet I would suggest that we'd be all more, more likely to be able to achieve such a goal like that. And then, you know, consider all the people that don't want, who like cities, who maybe like that kind of life. You know, automation and labor-saving technology will provide that for everyone, right? So that, that, you know, let's say it's a universal basic income with automation is the what would have, right? That would, you know, people who would want to go to, you know, be a, a, a hobby farmer somewhere on 80, 100 acres, they could do that with their universal basic income because all of the work that they normally would have to do is done by someone else. The, our problem now is that we're, we're stuck by where the job is, is is needed, right? So this would create more choice for people. And, and Dick seems to see it as kind of as pigeonholing everyone into 
one kind of mass consumer culture. And I, I just don't agree with them on this. But but maybe you have a different point of view. So if you if you do have a different point of view about this, please leave a comment below or write me at hundred pagescast at gmail.com. I'd, I'd really love to hear from, from all of you about this. If you saw the episode of Philip K. Dick Electric Dreams that was quote-unquote based on this story, um, share your feelings about that. I'll, I'll probably watch it eventually. I've just been a little overwhelmed lately, um, partially because I've been working on this podcast, but I, I'm doing other things too. I'm working on a a book on H.P. Lovecraft, and I got a few courses I got to prepare and things like that. So I haven't had that much time for TV lately, but I, I will eventually get to them and get to all of them, and and maybe have my you know share some of my feelings about them. But that'll be it for this episode. Uh, sales pitch, nice story, a really class, a classic one, and and really one we should read, even if I don't agree with it. I I do think it's one of his great stories, and it's funny. It's the the conversations between the Fast Red and the Morris family are wonderful, and it's it's just a lot of fun. So take a look at it. Um, thank you again for listening, and I'll be back sh- uh, shortly with another episode on another story of Philip K. Dick by Philip K. Dick. Come and possess my tired thoughts once That leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving